Today's New Testament lesson is from the book of Matthew, chapter 21, verses 28 through 32. What do you think? A man had two sons. He went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. He answered, I will not. But later he changed his mind and went. The father went to the second and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said the first. Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are going into the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even after you saw it, you did not change your minds and believe him. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks, Thanks be, be to God. God. Peace be with you. Thanks be to God indeed. And thank you so much, Gary and Carol, for reading our lesson. Uh, we miss you, and it's great to see you on screen. Uh, we give you thanks for sharing the word with us today. To Adam for leading us in prayer, to Mason and our praise team, our production staff, uh, we're so grateful for all of you, and especially for those of you who are tuning in to be with us as we break together the word of God together and share in this teaching. Uh, we're continuing today in our fourth week uh, this series that we're choosing to call reorientation in a disoriented world. And what we're doing is we're taking a closer look at the preaching of Jesus in the New Testament. Specifically, we're looking at several of the parables of Jesus during this epiphany season, during this season in which we think about reorientation. Now today we're moving from the parable discourse. We, we were in Matthew 13, which is called the parable discourse for three weeks. And today we're moving to Matthew chapter 21, where we'll spend two weeks. But today I want us to focus on the text that Gary and Carol just read for us from Matthew 21 verses 28 through 32, which is the parable of the two sons. I was saying to Adam as we were coming into worship this morning that I don't think I've ever preached on this specific text. I've alluded to it, but I don't know that I've ever actually preached on it. And I've just started my 39th year in ministry on January the 2nd. So I think it's about time to address this text finally. I wanna begin uh, by saying just a word, as always, about the context or, or the background of this particular passage. Early in Matthew 21, beginning with verse 1, Jesus has just entered into Jerusalem, the holy city, on the day that we call Palm Sunday to a hero's welcome. Upon entering the city, you may remember that Jesus created quite a stir in the temple precincts. He saw a religious institution that had somehow become more preoccupied with pomp and circumstance than with prayer and repentance. And so Jesus did a little renovating, as you might say. Of course, the cleansing of the temple scene did not sit well with the religious authorities. And we understand why. You can't have some rogue rabbi from up north acting like he owns the place. So in this passage, immediately preceding what Gary and Carol read for us, the chief priest and the elders had a little come to Jesus 
with Jesus. Their question, I think, was very valid. By what authority have you done these things? Who gave you the authority to do this? It's a valid question because after all, Jesus had no office. Jesus had no position, no title, no rank, no ordination. Who gave you the authority? And Jesus, in typical rabbinical fashion, answers their question with a question. It's been said to be Jewish is to ask questions. And Jesus was very Jewish. In fact, if you comb through the New Testament, you will discover that Jesus asks no less than 300 questions in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You will also discover that Jesus was asked over 180 questions in the Gospels by others. And the funny thing is, Jesus seldom gives a straight answer to a question. Jesus is not really a fill-in-the-blank rabbi. He is not one to spoon-feed his students and disciples. In fact, Jesus doesn't just answer hard questions. Jesus questions easy answers. There's a nine-year-old in our community, in our church. She and her mother have been writing to me questions Difficult questions, numerous, tough questions. Uh, Why do bad things happen to good people? Why did my dog die? Difficult question. Who, Who made God? Why is there sin in the world? On and on and on. And I've been dealing with these questions a few at a time. So every couple of weeks, I'll take two or three questions and I will try to respond to them. Sometimes I will try to answer them for this child. And sometimes I will wind up asking her the same questions. In other words, I will ask questions of her questions because I want to know what she thinks. In fact, isn't it interesting that verse 28 begins with those words from Jesus before the parable, what do you think? Jesus is always asking questions of other questions. And he does so in the prelude to this text. In fact, when they have that come to Jesus meeting with Jesus, Jesus asks them, was John's baptism from heaven or of human origin? Now that's a catch 22 question. Because the religious elders know if they say from heaven, Jesus is gonna say, then why didn't you obey him? If Jesus answers the question of, or if they answer the question of human origin, the crowd's going to be all over them because they revered John and considered him a prophet. And so the religious elders choose the safe answer. They reply, we don't know. And Jesus says, neither will I tell you from whence comes my authority. Checkmate. And then... With that as a background, Jesus tells this this parable. A man had two sons. He went to the first and said, son, go and work in the vineyard. And the boy said, I will not. But later he changed his mind and went. The father said to the second son, the same thing, go and work in the field. And he said, sure, I'll go. But he didn't. And Jesus asks 
these religious elders to whom he's telling the story, which son did the will of the father? And there's only one right answer. And they gave it. They said the first son. And Jesus said, listen to this. Truly I say unto you, the tax collectors and prostitutes are entering into the kingdom of heaven ahead of you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and prostitutes believed him. And even after you saw it, you did not change your minds and believe him. That's pretty pointed. In fact, it's a little acerbic. When you understand the context and what Jesus is saying here, it's no wonder that the religious professionals wanted to get rid of Jesus. I want to add a couple of things. I want to mention a couple of things that I think are very interesting about this story. The first thing to note in the parable is that both sons belong to the father. The religious and the irreligious, the obedient and the disobedient, both are sons of the father. It reminds me a little bit of Luke chapter 15, another parable of two sons. The elder brother and the prodigal are both sons of the father. In fact, even when the younger boy is living in a far country, tending pigs, behaving like a pagan, he's still his father's son. And the father longs for his return. And so the parable is saying to us, this is a father who has two sons, two daughters. There's something else that jumps out in this text to me, and that is how often persnickety the religious folk can sometimes be. You know what I'm talking about. I I mean, rather hard to please, rather quick to find fault, fastidious, nitpicky, present streaming company excluded, of course. But sometimes religious folk like me tend to become a little persnickety. And you see that in the story. Jesus mentions this also in Matthew chapter 11, verse 16. You remember this story where he says, he asked this question, to what can I compare this generation? And then he answers his own question. It's like children in the marketplace calling out to one another. We played the flute, but you wouldn't dance. We sang a dirge, but you wouldn't mourn. For John came neither eating or drinking, and you said of him, he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and you said of him, he's a glutton and a drunkard. He is a friend of sinners and tax collectors. In other words, for the religious professionals, John's ministry was too harsh, and Jesus was too soft. For the religious professionals, John's ministry was too judgy, and Jesus was too accepting. And Jesus concludes verse 19 in chapter 11, yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. In other words, wisdom is proved right by action. So what Jesus is saying, don't just listen to what we say or how we say it, watch what we do. It's what you do that matters. 
Now, let me stop for just a moment and say that is not to say that words are insignificant. In fact, Jesus says in Matthew 12, verse 36, on the day of judgment, you will have to give an account for every careless word you utter for your words, by your words, you will be justified and by your words, you will be condemned. In another section, chapter 15, verse 11 of Matthew, it's not what goes into the mouth that defiles us, but what comes out of the mouth out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Words are critical. I remember a poem I learned as a little boy growing up that goes like this. Be careful of the words you say, keep them short and sweet. You never know from day to day which ones you'll have to eat. Words are important, but so are deeds. And haven't you discovered that if words and deeds don't coincide, our witness begins to lose its power. One son said yes, but lived no. The other son said no, but lived yes. Now, I think the key to the story is obedience. You remember how Jesus closed his Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7? He said, not everybody who says, Lord, Lord, not everyone who confesses, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom, but only he, she who does the will of my Father. In other words, it's not enough to say it. You've got to do it. You've got to live the yes. What we profess to believe has little value if it is not translated into obedience. There's one other thing I want to mention in this text that I think is key to understanding it. It's the little recurring phrase, a changed mind. Now, I want you to go back to the parable for a moment. I've placed it. It's a lot of words, but I want you to read this along with me, and I want you to look specifically at those two phrases, a changed mind. A man had two sons. He went to the first and said, go and work in the vineyard today. He answered, I will not, but later, here it is, he changed his mind and went. The dad goes to the second son, says the same thing, and he answers, I'll go, sir, but he didn't. Which son, asked Jesus, did the will of his father? They said the first. Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, the tax collectors and prostitutes are going into the kingdom before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and prostitutes believed him, And even after you saw it, you did not, here it is, change your minds and believe him. One son changed his mind and the other did not. The key to obedience to God is often a changed mind. In fact, the word for this is metanoia. It means repentance. It means turn around. 
It means do a reverse, a 180. In fact, the gospel preaching both of John and Jesus begins with the word repent, change, repent, and believe the gospel. It is okay to change your mind. In fact, it is absolutely necessary sometimes to change your mind. But here's the thing. According to this parable, it's not just the non-religious who need to change. It's the religious. Conversion, of course, demands change, but so does sanctification. Sanctification is the ongoing change of grace that happens in sons and daughters of God. It's what Paul was talking about in Romans 12, verse 2, when he said, look, be not conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Then and only then will you be able to discern what is pleasing to God. Reorientation in a disoriented landscape requires a change of mind. It was George Bernard Shaw who said, progress is impossible without change. And those who cannot change their minds cannot change anything. William Blake, the 18th century poet who lived during the time of Wesley said, the man who never alters his opinions is like stagnant water he breeds reptiles in the mind. It's okay to change your mind. In fact, it is necessary in order to be a Christian to change your mind. Now, please understand, I'm not talking about change for change's sake. In fact, I don't have to tell you, but you know that change without purpose can be dreadful. I'm talking about change for Christ's sake. I'm talking about change for love's sake. I'm talking about change for kingdom's sake. Two weeks ago, this very day, Reverend Casey Orr was out at the drive-thru in the morning giving out star words for Epiphany. This is a wonderful tradition. Uh, many of you received one of these words. It's a tradition during Epiphany where a word is written on a star in remembrance of the wise men who followed the star. Just a word is written and it becomes in the new year your word to focus on, your word to live by. And, and she wrote a different word on all those stars. She and Adam handed them out, words like breathe, words like courage, words like rest, words like gentle, words like neighbor, words like perseverance. And 150 of you received a word on that star. After the service, I was going to my car and I decided to drive through myself to get my word from Casey. And when I drove through, she looked at me and she said, Davis, I'm sorry, we have run out of words. And I said, Casey, it is a sad day when a pastor runs out of words. She said, I'm so sorry, I need a word. I said, she said, I'll think about it. And the next morning, she sent me an email. She said, I've been praying about it, thinking about a word all night for you, and I have decided to give you the word renewal. That's my word. 
as I've begun to reflect on the year past and, and, and when I envision the year ahead, this is what I'm asking God for. This is my word, renewal. I'm asking God to, to reorient my mind and my heart so that I might actually, actually live out my, my yes to God and not just say it, but actually live it. Let me share one example of this before I close. Our bishop, Bishop Bill McAlilly, sent me a piece recently from a woman named Krista Tippett. I don't know if you've heard of Mrs. Tippett. She is a National Humanitarian Award winner, given that award by the president a few years ago. She, she has a podcast and a newsletter called On Being. She is also the granddaughter of a Baptist minister from Shawnee, Oklahoma. She has a theology degree. In this particular article that she wrote, she shared an email from a friend of hers whose name is Whitney Coe. It was shared the day after the events at the Capitol. And now Whitney Coe is a native of Athens, Tennessee, East Tennessee, where she still lives. She is a young mother and she is a doer. She is a leader in, in a program called the Center for Rural Strategies. And Krista is quoting Whitney Coe from an email that Whitney sent her the day after the events took place at the Capitol. I want to read it for you. I'm at home, she writes, nursing my youngest daughter, Susanna, who had a scary fall on Monday night and is now recuperating from surgery. She's going to be fine, but my goodness, 2021 came in hard. In fact, it feels a lot like 2020 still. Our hospital experience put us directly in the path of some wonderful East Tennesseans. Nurses, technicians, doctors, the other parents waiting in the ER, the receptionist, the parking attendant, the security guard, all wonderful people. She said, I sat there thinking, I'm sure that they're not all of the same mind, politically, theologically, ideologically. I know they're not all the same ethnically. I can see that. But each one of them responded to my daughter's trauma with their full humanity, with everything that they had. I had forgotten, she said, what it feels like to see people beyond their tribe beyond their ideology, and it, it broke something open in me. I've been living, she said, in a castle of isolation these many months, and it has in some ways rotted and blotted my insides. I'm aware of my own contempt, my anger, and maybe even paranoia that courses through my veins, and I wonder if this is just a snippet of sometimes where we are as a nation why is our righteous indignation and disgust so much easier to bubble up than our compassion? It makes me realize, she said, that there is no substitute for coming into the presence of one another. There is no substitute for incarnation. There is no meme. No Twitter post, no op-ed, no breaking news, no TED talk. 
that can soften and strengthen our hearts like actually just tending to one another. We don't have to ignore or excuse the darkness that we all carry, but we do have to keep showing up so that we don't lose ourselves to bitterness. End of quote. As I read that piece, I have to say, I thought of you. I thought of me. I thought of us. I thought of the church. That's our calling. Our calling is not to make a blue state red or a red state blue. Our calling is to keep showing up as God shows up among us. Our calling is to assist God in the co-creation of a culture of love through relationships with Jesus and others, all kinds of others, so that sons and daughters of God, whoever they are, wherever they come from, whatever their perspective might find in us, the yes of obedience. The yes that comes from a changed mind that will actually do the will of the Father. My word is renewal. Maybe it's our word God help us to do more than just say and by all means help us to live our yes not for our sakes but for love's sake for God's sake for the kingdom's sake in Jesus name Amen